Welcome to City Hope London's Sermon Podcast. To find out more about us, visit www.cityhope.london. Morning, City Hope. Just, just testing to see that this works. Good. Is it? Ah, nice. Uh, I'm just recovering from a cold, so if, if my voice is running away, uh, that's probably the reason, uh, but I mean, we'll get through it. So before we start, uh, good morning, everyone. It was fantastic seeing the baptisms, and um, hopefully this message doesn't put them off. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So before we start, I just have a question. Um, how many of you read terms and conditions before you sign up to anything? Because for me, I think terms and conditions are quite boring, and um, I, I only read the part, if, if I'm paying for the service, I only read the part that talks about cancellation, because I want to know, you know, what, what is it going to take for me to get out of this? Um, but yeah. But I think, I've, you know, in 2014, there was this cybersecurity company that was offering free Wi-Fi in central London. And you had to sign up to their terms and conditions to get the free Wi-Fi. Now, inside the terms and conditions was what they called the Herod Clause. And this Herod Clause meant that if you signed up to the service, you get the service free, but you had to give up your eldest child to them forever. But luckily for the people that did sign up, of course, the company did not enforce that, that, that condition and probably they would have been done for child trafficking anyway. <laughs> but that's kind of like the message that we have today. It's, it's kind of like those terms and conditions. Did you read the terms and conditions when you gave your life to Jesus? So we'll turn to the passages where we're going to read some of these terms and conditions. So... So the, the, we continue this series in 1 Peter, and I think we've been going through the phase um, where now in the, in the holiness one, I mean in the witness, so hope, holiness, and witness, and Chris started off the witness phase, and I, I'm coming off with the second installment of that. So our reading will come from 1 Peter chapter 2 and some more verses from 1 Peter chapter 4. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then we go to chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, 
do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Amen. When I was preparing for this sermon, because the book of Peter, at least the first book of Peter, is sort of, it, it talks a lot about suffering. I couldn't help but think about the age-old question that non-believers ask, which is, if God is so good, if God is so loving, why is there so much suffering in the world? For us Christians, that question may actually be strange because for us, I mean, suffering is kind of like part of the deal. And to connect it to that analogy of terms and conditions, these are the terms and conditions of following Jesus. And I'm sorry to break it to you, especially for those that were baptized today, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you believed in Jesus, you are agreeing to the possibility of suffering. But I want to invite my unbelieving friends, to just think about it. A huge chunk of the suffering in the world comes from us. We do nasty things to each other. Now, if we want God to stop that suffering, that may mean God wiping out humanity from the face of the earth, which is not what he wants to do. So maybe the answer to why God allows the suffering, it could be because he wants us to see the consequences of our actions, of our decisions to see how terrible it is. Potentially, maybe a world with this amount of suffering is just the right kind of world to produce the maximum number of people who are going to believe in God, who are going to be saved. Maybe that's why. I mean, I'm speculating here, but at least it shows that God has got good reasons for why he allows suffering. But you may be thinking, what about natural disasters? I mean, those are not man-made. And with everything that's happening in Turkey and, and, and Syria, it's okay. It's okay to ask that question. I don't think it is God's intention, you know, for us to be harmed by natural disasters. But when I think about it, and I'm just guessing here, if God were to stop natural disasters from harming us, then God will also have to stop the evil, the nasty things that we do to each other from also happening. And if God did that, then there's no room for personal transformation because you will not see the consequences of your actions. So while evil and suffering are terrible, I think they do have a place in God's plan for redemption. But I'm not here to talk about suffering in general. The one question that did occur to me as I was preparing was, well, now that I believe in God, now that I've given my life to Jesus, why am I still suffering? And I think as Christians, sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that now that you're part of God's family, all your problems are going to be solved. Everything is going to be fine. But I just want to offer you three reasons why I think God allows the suffering to happen to us. And I think the first one is God allows this suffering to happen because he wants us to share in Christ's sufferings so that we can share in Christ's joy. The Bible is littered with examples of people who were serving God but yet still suffered. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, you see the roll call of those names. And this brings you back to that analogy of terms and conditions. Because normally when we preach the gospel, 
we always focus on the benefits of the gospel, but we never talk about the obligations of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is why in the 20th century, the most famous line to any gospel message was, I'm sure people, you remember this, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that statement in of itself, it's true. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but without the proper context, it can also be misleading because we just want good things in life, but sometimes we don't want to sacrifice. You know, I want to pass my exams without studying. I want to become rich without doing any work. And here's a crazy one. I want to win the lottery without even buying the ticket. You know? So we want to put in no effort at all, but we want to get the maximum gain. But the gospel that Jesus presents is a gospel that doesn't just draw attention to the benefits, but it also points to your obligations as a follower of Jesus. That's why you hear the phrases or the commands such as deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, you know, lose your life for my sake, love your enemies, and so forth. So when we read in 1 Peter, if I just go back a bit, sorry, um, it says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, right? This is First Peter chapter 2, 20 to 21. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Now there's something I just want to pick up from this verse, which if you blink, you'll miss it. It says, it is commendable for you to suffer for doing good. But then there are these words, to this you were called. Did you know that when you believed in Jesus, you were agreeing to a calling of enduring unjust suffering? That is the small print, the terms and conditions that you should have been aware of. But spoiler alert, if you're worried right now, to say, ooh, what did I sign up for? The story does end up with a glorious ending. So there's nothing for you to worry about. But to be clear, I am not saying that God has just called you to a life of suffering. No, that's not what God is calling you to. Because you enduring any kind of suffering is not necessarily commendable to God. So as Peter says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? So if you are suffering because you have done something wrong, then all is fair. The scales of justice are in balance. There's nothing you can complain about. But Peter says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or meddler. So what kind of suffering are we being called to endure? The verse says, suffering for doing good, which is unjust suffering. Normally when people do good things, we expect for them to get a reward. And it's quite shocking for someone to do something good and they get punished for doing it. But let's take these verses in context. Peter is writing to people who potentially were slaves. And they probably had very cruel masters. And there's nothing more a cruel master likes than to exercise their power through brutality. If it was difficult for a pagan slave, how much more for the Christian slave? 
because a Christian slave could have been punished for refusing to partake in idol worship. So Peter is encouraging them here that they must just submit in reverent fear of God. So he's not saying, oh, you know, um, obey what your master is doing. But sometimes I think in our modern sensibilities, when we read the, the verse, you know, in reverent fear of God, submit, we are thinking, oh, is he saying that he must, they must obey every single thing that their master says? I don't think he's saying that. I think what he means is he doesn't want them to violently resist, you know, what their masters are doing, but they should just endure that suffering, knowing fully well that ultimately it is God who brings justice. But then there's something I just want to draw out from this call to unjust suffering, which I think should help us understand why God allows the suffering. As I said before, cruel masters could just punish their slaves for living out their faith. But as 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This means the slave has got a choice. Either obey God and be punished, or disobey your master, I mean, or disobey your master, which means you're disobeying God. So the calling isn't to endure unjust suffering. The real calling is to do good even though you know what the consequences are. The real calling is to choose to do the good thing, knowing fully well that it could get you into trouble. Because when you're committed to the good act, which is right and righteous, you will then have the power to endure it because you know that it is worth it. And this is nothing new because the Bible is full of people who suffered for doing the right thing. So I'll introduce you to my rogues gallery of the criminals <laughs> in the Bible and the crimes they committed and the punishment they got. Fortunately for someone like Daniel, he eventually didn't become dinner for lions. And fortunately for Job, he got everything back in the end. But the Bible is full of people who did the right thing and faced horrible consequences for doing the right thing. But head and shoulders above everyone else is the Lord himself, because as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew what it would take to redeem the world, and yet he chose to endure it. This is the example that he has set for us to follow. We submit to the punishment for doing good from those with power over us because the good we do is not only the right thing to do, but also it is worth it. When we endure suffering for doing good, we're following Christ's example. So on one hand, you've got Jesus Christ who was crucified even though he was innocent, he didn't do anything wrong. You likewise, when you are punished for doing the right thing, you are following that example of Christ. And that's what it means when we're saying we are participating in the sufferings of Jesus. So now we know God allows that suffering because it allows us to participate in Christ's sufferings so that we can share in his joy. The second reason God will allow the suffering is because it will test 
your faith. He allows the suffering to test your faith. Now, if I made the claim to you and I came and I said, I am the strongest person in the world. No one is stronger than me. How would you go about testing that claim? You're obviously not going to say, hey, why don't you sit down here? Are you comfortable? Do you want a cup of tea? Are you, are you okay? That's not how you're going to test whether I'm the strongest person in the world. Right now, some of you are probably thinking of ways you could be testing this. <laughs> you know? And I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know what, what, what test you have in, in, in place. But whatever test you're thinking of, it's going to be a grueling encounter, and it's going to be painful. So Paul, I mean, Peter called the unjust suffering a fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. This is a trial by fire. And fire purifies, and it is painful. But what Peter says, and this is quite encouraging, he says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. When precious metals are purified, the temperature is put up to over a thousand degrees to remove all those impurities. And God, being the goldsmith that he is, he's putting us in this crucible of life to strengthen our faith. Have you noticed that sometimes when you're suffering, you stop relying on yourself and you start leaning to God. And as you lean more to God, you begin to see God moving, and that strengthens your faith. If God gave us the good life, I think we'll probably revert back to our old ways and we become weaker and not stronger. So unjust suffering is also a test of your faith. It proves that your faith is genuine, right? If your faith is not genuine, you probably shrink back and you're destroyed. But as Hebrews 10.39 promises us, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. The third reason God allows suffering is because it offers an opportunity for witness. When we suffer, it offers that common ground between us and those who don't believe. We feel the pain they feel. We go through the same things they go through. When we endure the unjust suffering, the world is watching. And when they see us endure that unjust suffering, they'll want to know what gives us hope in the face of such injustice. We become unrelatable if we don't suffer in any way. It would look very weird if God was just showering us with blessings all the time and no problems, nothing. And the world looks at that. I think they'll even become more bitter and ask the question, if God is fair, why does he not treat everyone just the same? And I don't think the hope of material comfort will produce genuine faith. So I believe there is a wisdom in God allowing us to experience undeserved suffering, knowing that we can use those experiences for testimony and to help others who may be struggling to come to faith to at least see that suffering cannot be used as an excuse to reject God. But ultimately, it is the Lord himself who offers the greatest example of enduring suffering 
as an opportunity for witness. Most unbelievers have this emotional, almost visceral reaction to the existence of suffering in the world, and they can't quite square it with how can you have a loving God, but yet there's all this suffering. So emotionally, they can't square the two things together. But in the gospel, we get a savior who's willing to suffer as a human being. God is not a distant creator who leaves us alone to fend for ourselves. He actually came to earth to suffer along with us. So if you are suffering unjustly and you are thinking this is not fair, you are right, it is not fair. You're correct. And Jesus knows exactly how you feel. But he doesn't know how you feel from his position as an omniscient creator. But he knows how you feel, how you feel from his position as a fellow sufferer with you. So as we summarize just those three points, God wants us to participate in Christ's sufferings so that we can share in his joy. God wants to prove that our faith is genuine because he's showing you that you truly believe. And then God is providing us with a powerful witness to the rest of the world. So in light of all this, what then should we do when we find ourselves in the middle of all this suffering? So I'm just going to go through very quickly um, a few pointers of what we should do. It's going to be bite-sized. I'm not going to give you the full treatment, but hopefully it will, it will just trigger some thoughts in your mind, and then you can, you can meditate on this um, you know, when, you, when you remember what I've just said. So the first thing that we should do is actually a don't, even though I'm saying it's something we should do, but the first thing we should do is um, don't be surprised. If you're expecting something to happen, you'll be surprised if it happened. But what Peter is really saying is, we ought to know better. We ought to know that suffering is part of the deal. There are numerous verses in the Bible that, that, that really tell us this. And I'll just sort of mention a few. So in, in, the, in the book of John, you've got, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the Lord wasn't surprised when he was on the cross. He wasn't crying, my Lord, my Lord, why am I here? No. He knew why he was on the cross. So when we face cruel opposition to our obedience to the gospel, we should expect it. The second thing we should do is we should rejoice. So Peter 4, 1 Peter 4 says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When you suffer for doing good, you're following Christ's example because you bear his name. So as I've mentioned before, you are participating in his sufferings. You have the promise of seeing him when his glory is revealed, so you rejoice. And as we saw before, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So likewise for us, for that joy that is set before us, the promise of a coming Messiah, of, of Jesus, of seeing him in his glory, we endure the suffering because they're achieving for us something far greater for eternity. 
The third thing is don't be ashamed. <laughs> if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. If you remember when this series began, we were told that we are part of God's kingdom. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Because we bear his name, we no longer walk in darkness, but now we walk in his marvelous light. This is nothing to be ashamed of. I know suffering can be humiliating, and in most cases you feel disrespected, degraded, you feel belittled, and it's normal to feel those things. But if you put yourself in the shoes of those slaves that Peter was writing to, their suffering would have been a public spectacle. It's, it would have been seen by everyone. But if you remember when we looked into the book of Colossians, Christ's death on the cross is described as Jesus making a public spectacle of the powers and authorities, and Jesus having victory over them by the cross. So likewise, if you're enduring unjust suffering, you too are making whatever it is that is making you suffer, you're making a public spectacle of them. And you enduring that suffering is your victory over them. The other reason we should not be ashamed is because you receive God's blessing. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When the spirit rests on you, you produce the fruit of the spirit. You are empowered to endure the suffering. You are signed, sealed, and delivered. Your salvation is secure. The fourth thing we should do is we should commit ourselves to God. It says those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. So we turn again to the example of Christ. When the herald insulted him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. On the cross, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Similarly, when we're suffering, it is painful, but we trust that God has seen it and will remember the suffering we've endured. I don't want to be dismissive of the seriousness of the pain of suffering that people go through. And I'm not saying, hey, you know, keep calm and carry on, green and buried. No, that's not what I'm saying. And I think there's a reason why we've got this community of believers around us. Because as Galatians says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. And the one person who knows how you really feel is Jesus. I would encourage people to tell him how you really feel. When I was a much younger Christian, I used to be scared to tell God how I really felt when I, when I prayed. I used to think, ah, God is not going to like this, and, you know, and he's going to disapprove of what I'm, what I'm saying and things like that. So I would try my best to pray prayers that I thought were pleasing to him. You know, until one day I asked myself this question, if God knows everything, what's the point of hiding it from him? I might as well just tell him. So you heard it from me, and you can tell him this when you pray today. Vent your frustrations at him. Let it all out. Let him know. He already knows anyway. So don't try and bottle it up. Just let him know. So we commit ourselves to him because 
only he has the moral authority to bring about justice because he says, vengeance is mine. We trust that God will ensure that justice is served by holding those accountable who have made us suffer unjustly. And if those who persecute us repent, we still get justice through the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. So either way, we win. But I just want to say a few things about the vengeance is mine point because I think sometimes we, we do miss what God is trying to say. If you decide to revenge someone who has done something wrong to you, you are totally misunderstanding the seriousness of the sin. And I'll try and ram through this point with an illustration. Imagine a world in which it's just you and one other person who exist in this world. If that person does you wrong and sins against you, it means Jesus would have had to come into that world and die for that person's sin. That is the justice that is required for the sin. When you take revenge, you are disobeying God in taking the revenge, but whatever justice you think you're getting by what you're doing falls short of the justice that's required by God. So you're already committing a two-in-one in that, in, that, in that move. So the reason we commit to God is because we trust that he brings the true justice. That's why we commit ourselves to him. The last thing that is mentioned that we need to do is to continue to do good. And I think this is one of the tough ones. It's probably the toughest. Because if you're suffering and it's unfair, it's very discouraging and you feel like, hey, I wanna, why should I keep doing this? Why am I even bothering? Why should I care? You know? But remember, doing good, it's not necessarily what we do, but doing good is who we are. We don't do good because of some benefit that we think we're going to get out of it. We do it because it's an expression of Christ's character in us. Remember, it is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. If we stop doing good, then we might as well stop following Jesus. If you remember in the book of John, when Jesus had preached a very hard message and many of the disciples were walking away, he then turned to the 12 disciples, I mean apostles and he asked, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the question I would ask you is, if you stop doing good, where are you going to go? If all the goodness is in Jesus, it means outside of Christ you will not find anything good. Hating people, cursing people, taking revenge, that's easy. That comes natural to us. There is no effort required, and there is really nothing much more to be gained. If evil happens to us and we repay evil with evil, the only thing we do is increase the amount of evil. But true power is found in loving your enemies, in blessing those who curse you, in forgiving those who wrong you. When you do this, as we've read, the Spirit of God rests upon you. So in conclusion, finally, in conclusion, what can we say? Suffering is not bad, eh? <laughs> Anyway, jokes aside, suffering is terrible. I don't want to suffer. None of us here want to suffer. But I thought about how should we close you know, this, and I could have come up with some Shakespearean prose or some wonderful way of closing this. But I decided to do something which is maybe 
we can all just read the promises from the word of God that come to us that talk about suffering and what God will do for us and the encouragement we get from them. So in closing, I'm just going to be reading these verses. Uh, sorry, I don't think I have them on those slides. Okay, they're not on those slides, but I'll just read them out. So in Romans 5, it says, But we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. In Psalm 34, it reads, The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. In James, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We go to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the last one, which is my personal favorite, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen.